Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers about humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening this morning. We're going to be talking about a topic that might come across in a very academic way. I'm going to try and keep it exciting, but if you end up getting a little bit lost in this discussion, I'm very sorry. I'll do my best to keep you interested and to keep you involved in the conversation. You can also go to godsolutionshow.com and find the notes for today's show and listen to it again, and I'll suggest some further reading that you could do to familiarize yourself with some of what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about the Q document. The Q document has been hypothesized as a source for some of the New Testament Gospels, specifically the Synoptic Gospels, and it has also been an issue that certain groups, like the Jesus Seminar, have used to try and disparage the credibility of the Bible. There are a lot of problems with their criticisms, and since it is the kind of thing that gets brought up quite often, especially in academic settings, I think we should take some time to deal with this issue. Now, for the critic that might be listening this morning, thinking, yep, I've read the Jesus Seminar people, and I understand that the Q document supposedly says all these extra things about Jesus, you should pay very close attention because there's no reason whatsoever to believe any such thing. We'll discuss the evidence this morning, and I'll let you make the final call. So what about Q? The reason that critical scholars try to use this hypothetical document to disparage the reliability of the scriptures, specifically the Gospels, is because they are literally grasping at straws to criticize the New Testament. Groups like the Jesus Seminar, who are, I would say, pseudo-scholarly groups, not that everyone there is not a scholar, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying their practices, specifically voting, just whoever thinks X, Y, or Z was or was not a statement of Jesus, is a very bad way to do scholarship. We should not do scholarship based on popular votes, but rather on scholarly research. And they don't do that. So I think the Jesus Seminar is fatally flawed from its inception onward. It is not treating the data in a way that would be in accord with scholarship. They're trying to start out to prove a point from the beginning, and that point being that we should not trust what the Gospels say about Jesus. So if they're already starting with that kind of bias, and if that bias is already evident in all they do, and it is, we should have a hard time accepting what they say about some hypothetical document. So the reason that we have the concept of Q comes from what has traditionally been called the synoptic problem. There are both wording similarities and theological concepts that are present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that agree with each other. Now, when I say agree, I'm not saying that they agree in content or disagree in content because they always agree in content. But what we're talking about is whether or not they agree in the exact wording of those particular components. When we see those very similar passages where there is either identical wording or extremely close to identical wording, it is reasonable to infer that there was some kind of literary dependence between them. And the synoptic problem, it's not really a problem, so to say. It definitely does not indicate that there is a problem inherent with the scriptures, but it is the question of 
which of those three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, came first. And there is an attempt at discovering which one came first based on the patterns of literary dependence that are perceived in the text. So we're going to talk about that today. Now, if Q exists, it exists because Matthew and Luke were written after Mark. There are passages in both Matthew and Luke that are found in Mark. But then Matthew and Luke also share information that is not in Mark. So the theory goes, Matthew and Luke, both independently of each other, used Mark. They also used some other source other than Mark for the material that's not in Mark. Now, that other source is what some people would call Q. Even if that source did exist, and we'll get more into this in a minute, it's unreasonable to assume that it had more information than what we find in Matthew and Luke, because any such assumption would be nothing more than an assumption. There's no evidence of anything like that. So the synoptic problem is not really a problem at all, but rather a description of the various relationships between the synoptic gospels. These so-called agreements and disagreements, again, describe wordings, not actual disagreements of content. So that similar wording that we might see in Matthew and Luke, for example, or Matthew and Mark, or Luke and Mark, seems to imply literary dependence, and scholars attempt to try and reconstruct how that occurred, which one came first, and so forth. If Mark was written first, like I said, just to clarify, and if it was then used by Matthew and Luke, there would seem to be a need for another source to explain other similar material in Matthew and Luke that's not also in Mark. That's where the idea of Q comes from. If Matthew and Luke can be shown to predate Mark, then no such Q document needs to be contrived. In other words, if we can show that Matthew came first, then it would be unreasonable to hypothesize an extra source because we could make the deduction that Mark simply used some of the material in Matthew, but not all of it. Even if Q existed and there is no manuscript evidence for it, it's crazy for critics to hypothesize that it consisted of material different from that found in the canonical Gospels because no evidence for any other types of material exist. The only evidence we have is that the picture that we see of the historical Jesus in the Gospels is accurate. This, like so many other academic trends, has a time and a place in the study of the Bible, but it must not become bigger than it needs to be. Daryl Bach encourages us, saying, May the church never lose sight of the fact that its mission is to focus on and proclaim the Jesus whom the combination of our sources reveal. Tragically, this is a Jesus whom the world is rapidly losing sight of, in part because of the work of revisionists, he's referring to groups like the Jesus Seminar, who have abused the likely presence of Q. In other words, whether one argues for the presence of Q or of Matthew followed by Luke, let us not forget that the real subject is Jesus. So no matter what scholarly perspective you take on this issue, we can't get away from the historical Jesus found in the Gospels. Some, like those in the Jesus Seminar, have used the supposed Q document to come up with radical conclusions which deny the deity, supernatural actions, and scriptural accounts of Jesus. They just can't do that. Others have noted the obvious inconsistencies in these critical theories and recognize the various solutions to the supposed problem are compatible with a high view of Scripture. Craig Blomberg, who we've interviewed on this show, check out some of those interviews at godsolutionshow.com, describes the reality that just like so many supposed biblical contradictions have been cleared up in the past, 
Quote, the commentator may become more and more confident that new challenges can be met with equal success and less and less willing naively to equate superficial divergence with genuine contradiction. Michael Grisani describes the trustworthy of the Bible's authors, stating, if the Bible authors availed themselves of extra-biblical sources, for example, if there were a source like Q, they made use of them under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, thereby guarding themselves from inaccuracy of fact or interpretation. In other words, even if a Q document did exist, it was used in a way that was correct and in a way that corresponds with the historical Jesus seen in the Gospels. I want to discuss the so-called synoptic problem today. This topic involves similarities and differences between the different Gospels. A lot of various solutions have been proposed, and I'm going to give a brief description of each and which one I think is the strongest. It seems reasonable that the two-Gospel Griesbach hypothesis argued by William Farmer is legitimate and most supported by the historical and logical data, while a two-source or Q perspective that complies with Scripture could be a good second alternative based on the textual evidence. A Q that is different from what we see in Scripture is not a logical possibility because there's no evidence of any kind for any such thing. All hypercritical theories that extrapolate the Q hypothesis to imply more than any of the evidence permits should be rejected. The student of the Bible must recognize, as Blomberg states, that the solution to this synoptic problem is, quote, a central building block in our understanding of how to answer questions about the trustworthiness of the Gospels. The term synoptic means to see together, to have the same view or outlook. And it has been used since the 18th century to describe the similarities, differences, and order of authorship between the Synoptic Gospels. This discussion originated much earlier than that, however. Papias's quote about this topic likely dates to the first part of the second century. And he states, therefore, on the one hand, Matthew arranged in order the sayings in the Hebrew dialect. On the other hand, each translated these as he was able. So the earliest historical evidence is for what scholars would call Matthean priority, or Matthew writing first. This clearly describes the church's early perspective that Matthew's gospel came first and was followed by the others. Papias claimed that this statement was supported by his conversations with those who had personally received it from Jesus' disciples and Matthew himself. Augustine recognized in the 5th century both the historical statements of the church fathers, and patterns of literary dependence and asserted that the canonical order was the order in which the Gospels were written, stating each of them is found not to have desired to write in ignorance of his predecessor. This was followed by the Griesbach hypothesis, also known as the two-gospel hypothesis, in 1783, which argued that Matthew was followed by Luke, which was followed by Mark. These theories all assume Matthean priority, and they were based in the historical positions of the church and the logical assumption, and this is important, that the apostle Matthew wouldn't need to quote a non-apostle like Mark. For the Q theory to be accurate, we have to have a situation where Matthew, who lived three years next to Jesus, seeing him face to face and hearing him with his own ears, would be quoting from Mark, who is a disciple of Peter who saw Jesus. And it just seems illogical to me. Not that it's impossible, but it does definitely seem illogical that an eyewitness and disciple of Christ would use a non-eyewitness's source for his material. That being said, these theories of Matthean priority were soon to be overshadowed by those proposing Markan priority, or Mark being first, 
based only on a literary analysis, not on any kind of external data. The two-document hypothesis, which assumes that Matthew and Luke wrote independently of each other using two sources, namely Mark and then some other source which has been dubbed Q, began to emerge in Eichhorn's studies in 1794 and Holtzman's work in 1863. So that's when we began hearing about Q. And the Farrar-Goulder hypothesis agrees with Mark and Priority, but rejects the necessity of Q by explaining the similarities between Matthew and Luke as a product of Luke's dependence on Matthew in addition to Mark. So it also gets out of Q. So I, I hope what you're seeing here is that in all these theories, the only way to come up with the need for Q is based on literary dependence issues. And even if those convincingly led us to believe in Q, it would be wrong to assume that Q had more than what's in the Gospels. So the two-document hypothesis and its derivatives, like the Oxford hypothesis, enjoyed overwhelming scholarly support for most of the past century. But William Farmer, who is an expert in this field, now claims that the majority of synoptic problem experts are now leaning towards Methean priority. That's a significant statement from somebody at the top of this field. Scholarly consensus has not been achieved and might never be, barring the discovery of more new evidence in this field. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution here on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We are talking about the hypothetical Q document and how that might affect our understanding of the synoptic gospels in the New Testament. So a few different examples of textual similarities would include portions of Matthew and Luke in chapter 3 of both of those. Also Matthew 11 and Luke 10, Matthew 18 and Luke 15, and Matthew 10 and Luke 12. Each of those have incredible textual similarities. So those are similarities of wording. There are also similarities of order that are prevalent throughout the Synoptic Gospels. And there are also various Old Testament quotations, like the quotation of Exodus 23:20 20, found in Matthew 11:10, Mark 1:2, and Luke 7:27, which have this connotation of literary dependence as well. These similarities, although obvious, can be explained in different terms than mark and priority. There are also differences in wording that seem to imply a relational dependence. There are passages in each of these synoptic gospels that can seem to imply that one was smoothing out the other rather than one making the other more awkward. For example, Mark uses very awkward language at times when he describes some of the same content that's found in Matthew and Luke. And it's hard to imagine that Mark would have made Matthew and Luke's information more awkward, the wording I'm talking about, rather than they actually smoothing out Mark's language if they use Mark as a source. So all of this has at its core the assumption that they're using each other as a source rather than sharing common memory of Jesus's teaching. So I think that's a bad assumption in the first place. But even if we were to grant them that assumption, it is assuming even more to say that there's no way Mark could have reworded it in a way that seemed a little more awkward. And then from there to base an entire theory involving an extra hypothetical document on that assumption. Mark does the same thing with some theological concepts that he seems to kind of share in a very awkward way. And again, this is inspired scripture. So when I say awkward, I'm not saying in a bad way. That's exactly how God wanted it shared 
with the people that Mark was writing to, and I'm totally okay with that. But some of the grammar stylistically sounds awkward, and some of the theological statements might have been hard for certain people to grasp at the time. But there's good evidence for why they're written that way, and that'll be, I guess, a different topic for a different show. So the first option is literary independence, which asserts that the gospel writers wrote independently of each other and that the similarities are simply a result of common factual memories and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we can discredit that possibility. The second option is literary dependence, which posits that the gospel writers may have used other factual sources under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and authoring their works. That view is the predominant view in today's academic setting. The main views that fall into that category are the two-gospel hypothesis, the two-source hypothesis, the Oxford hypothesis, and their derivatives. The similarities and differences between the synoptic gospels can be construed linguistically to show Matthew's and Luke's dependence on Mark. Blomberg's nine evidence for this position seem plausible. It has also been explained that the differences between Mark and Matthew and Luke can be attributed to Matthew and Luke smoothing out Mark, as I mentioned before. These would be what are called the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark. Again, we're not talking about substantive differences, but wording differences and things like that. The historical data, including unanimous early church history and an attribution to Matthew and all the early variations in the manuscript titles, cannot be ignored. The best external evidence supports Matthew going first, and therefore no need for Q. Even though it is possible that Matthew used the Gospel of Mark as a source, it seems unlikely, that, again, as I mentioned earlier, that one of Jesus' eyewitness and a close disciple would rely so heavily upon the account of someone who wasn't one of the twelve. As stated previously, the two-gospel hypothesis is most supported by the historical and logical data, while a two-source perspective seems more likely based on the textual evidence. Even though the similarities and differences can be attributed to Matthew and Luke smoothing out Mark, Scott McKnight recognizes, quote, this argument is really nothing more than an explanation that makes good sense of the data. It does not, however, approach the level of decisive proof for Markan priority. So although there are obvious similarities in the wording, extremely small percentages of these passages are identical, making this charge of literary dependence difficult to support. Also, Markan priority, or Mark going first, is based solely on literary dependence in the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark. Also, Mark and priority, or Mark going first, is based solely on literary dependence and the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark present problems for this theory. That leaves Mark and priority with only one injured leg to stand on, that being literary dependence, but there's even evidence of literary dependence of Mark on Matthew and Luke. I hope I'm not losing you here. It seems that Mark and priority is not so strong a position as it has been deemed in the past. This position is being buttressed by some linguistic data, but again, that also goes in the other direction, as in the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark. Much of the scholarship in this field seems to have, quote, run in fads, as Osborne notes, continuing that scholars are always searching for some new thing. So a lot of this so-called scholarship might be more scholars trying to make a name for themselves than actually following where the evidence leads. The similarities between the synoptics are prevalent, but identical very little of the time. 
The assumption of literary dependence seems unjustified and better explained by the memories of Jesus' disciples who lived in a culture that emphasized oral tradition and required large amounts of memorization. As Geisler states, neither order of events nor similarity of content is convincing grounds for positing literary dependence. Even if the literary dependence could be proved, there would be no way to show an exclusive dependence of Matthew and Luke on Mark. While the existence of Q seems plausible based on some of that linguistic data and evidence, scholars who extrapolate that to recklessly attack the historical reliability of the Gospels and their portrait of Jesus have, as Bach points out, quote, crossed into historical revisionism and distortion. And Boyd states, these scholars ask us to trade the reliable gospel portrait of Christ for a hypothetical reconstruction of history based on a hypothetical reconstruction of a hypothetical document. Did you get that? So talking about people like the Jesus Seminar that would try to use Q to try and disparage the gospel accounts of Jesus, Boyd states, quote, again, these scholars ask us to trade the reliable gospel portrait of Christ for a hypothetical reconstruction of history based on a hypothetical reconstruction of a hypothetical document. If Q did exist, it was most likely just sayings of Jesus preserved by his disciples, possibly even what Papias referred to concerning Matthew, that are fully preserved in the Gospels that we have. Explaining why, and the scholarship has mentioned this, why the early church didn't preserve Q. If Q was included in the Gospels that we have today, well, there'd be no need to preserve Q because it was all in the Gospels. It's crazy to assume that a hypothetical document like Q could have had hypothetical content not included in the Gospels, and that content would have hypothetically contradicted what we have in the Gospels. Do you see the level of insanity of these criticisms against the reliability of Scripture? So the non-existence of Q does seem to be a powerful argument against its hypothesis. This seems more like fabricating evidence than following where it leads. Geisler continues, stating, quote, There is nothing in the canonical Gospels that cannot be accounted for by positing that the authors were eyewitnesses and or contemporaries of the events, and they provided an accurate account of what they reported, just as Luke claims talking about Luke 1, 1 through 4. So Farmer gives us 15 steps to justify Matthew going first, which is in accordance with the external and historical data. They are as follows. One, the similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke is such as to justify the assertion that they stand in some kind of literary relationship to each other. Two, there are only 18 ways three documents which are related to one another can be related to one another. Three, adding additional hypothetical documents would increase the number of possibilities, but should only be considered if the data can't be explained by the actual evidence that we have, namely the three documents. Four, of those 18 possible arrangements, only six are viable. Five, order of content, the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark, and the correlation and similarity between Matthew and Mark seem to favor Methan priority, again, Matthew going first. Six, the phenomena of order of agreement among the Gospels also favors Methan priority. Seven, the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark also indicate Mark was written third. Eight, the agreement between order and wording indicates Mark was written third. Nine, it is reasonable to think that Mark drew on Matthew and Luke. Ten, it is possible to explain the extensive agreement between Matthew and Luke 
via one making use of the other. 11. The hypothesis that Luke made use of Matthew is in accord with Luke's statement in Luke 1.1. 12. Internal evidence indicates a dependence of Luke on Matthew rather than the other way around. 13. External evidence suggests that Matthew was written before Luke. 14. External evidence suggests that Matthew was written before Mark. 15. The final step. External evidence implies Mark was written third, not first as the Q hypothesis would suggest. So Farmer lays out 15, I think, conclusive steps that support the position that Matthew was written first and that Mark and Luke used Matthew as a source rather than Matthew and Luke using Mark plus Q as a source. I think this logically gets us out of having to create a hypothetical document named Q. And it surely tells us we can't hypothesize content in a hypothetical document that was never there. Therefore, the order of writing went Matthew, then Luke, then Mark. This explains the literary dependence and absolves the need for a hypothetical Q document. And we've got to remember that not only does that make good logical sense, but it's also in line with the earliest history of the church and the only history that the church maintained until this literary dependence became fashionable in the last few hundred years. So Farmer's 15 steps along with unanimous church history and apparently logical deductions make the case for the two gospel hypothesis strong, and that is probably why it is becoming the majority opinion of synoptic experts, again, according to Farmer. It seems the two-document hypothesis and Q, although possible if it agrees with the historical picture of Jesus found in the Gospels, is less likely, and the two-gospel hypothesis seems more likely. Osborne's final encouragement is pertinent here, and this perspective must be tempered with humility and what he calls unity among all of us against postmodernists, namely the narrative critics and the deconstructionists. So what about Q? Well, if Q existed, it was nothing more than an accumulation of Christ's teachings written down by eyewitnesses and later used as a source for the gospel accounts. There is, however, no manuscript evidence for any such manuscript. And no matter how you evaluate the evidence, it is wrong to use this hypothetical document to criticize the credibility of Scripture. And it's surely wrong to assume that a hypothetical document had extra hypothetical information and that that extra hypothetical information hypothetically disagreed with the picture of Christ preserved in the Gospels. So Jesus' seminar, the critics are wrong. And again, we see that we can trust the Bible. And specifically in this case, we can trust the Gospel accounts in all that they say about Jesus. If you're interested in more on this topic, please check out Rethinking the Synoptic Problem by Black and Beck. Again, that's Rethinking the Synoptic Problem by Black and Beck. I know it was kind of wordy and kind of academic this morning, but I hope it was interesting nonetheless. Again, you can get the notes and the audio for this morning's show at godsolutionshow.com. Before we go, I wanted to let you know that the Gospels describe Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, as Matthew wrote, who came and lived a perfect life on this planet, who died on the cross for all of your sins and mine, so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him, believing in him and confessing him as Lord with their mouth, will be saved. I would ask you this morning, if you've never taken that step, to say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and were risen again on that third day so that I too could have 
everlasting life. I put my faith in you. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. He says if you genuinely put your faith in him, asking him to forgive you and to come into your life, that you will be guaranteed an eternity with him in heaven and the abundant life that he promises you here on this earth. I hope that you'll take that step this morning. I would also like to invite you this morning to the River Church. They meet at 860 Plymouth Drive in Durango, right here off Florida Road. They'll be meeting at 1045 this morning. I hope to see you there. I would also like to invite you to connect on Tuesday night here on campus. We'll be meeting at Noble 125 at 6 p.m. Again, Noble 125, 6 p.m. this Tuesday for Connect. And finally, before we close out the show, I want to ask you to continue praying for all that's unfolding in the Middle East right now. I pray that the God that offers peace that passes understanding would become known to all those in that nation and in all those nations that are struggling so much right now with all of this violence. And I pray that the believers there and all people there would be protected. I hope you'll be praying for that situation as well. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.